before the start of this episode, we want to remind you of our annual C2 seminar, titled The Future of NATO Decision Making, which will take place from the 21st to the 23rd of November in The Hague. Registration is still open, but spots are filling up quickly. For more information about the program and to sign up, please visit c2coe.org seminar. And now back to the show. We don't need every level of command focused at the same uh, point in time. Uh, we have to look out further. And uh, even inside the headquarters, you know, we have current operations, we have future operations, and we have the planners. And the commander has to set direction for that. For this episode of the NATO Senior Mentors Podcast, the NATO C2CE invited John J.T. Thompson, who retired as a lieutenant general from the U.S. Army in 2020 after commissioning as a field artillery officer in 1986. During his 34 years of military service, he served across the globe and led formations at the platoon, company, battalion, brigade, division and army level. His recent assignments included the 75th Commandant of Cadets of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Commander of the 1st Cavalry Division at Fort Hood, and Commander of NATO Allied Land Command at Izmir. General Thompson, we are very pleased that you were willing and able to join us here. Can I call you uh, JT? Is that okay for you? Sure. Everybody else calls me JT, so you might as well join the party. It's all about command and control. And uh, we always try to start off with what is your perception of command and control? Um, yeah, to, uh, first, let me just say thanks to you and, and to Jan both. It's uh, great being with you. I've known you for a few years now, and uh, uh, thank you for the, the work you do, uh, uh, re really leading uh, cultural change, uh, changing culture. Uh, when it comes to command and control. But uh, to, to get your question, I, I think that command and control, um, there is no single activity in operations that is more important than uh, command and control. Um, command and control by itself will not secure an objective. It will not uh, destroy a target. It will not enable uh, logistics. Um, but none of those activities um, could be pursued and achieved toward a common objective without effective uh, command and control. And I'll take it a step further. You know, here we are at a um, headquarters of a joint force command, uh, NATO, in our doctrine, we have seven joint functions. Um, I would tell you that command and control is at the top and clearly the most important joint function that we do. Thank you for that. Uh, and talking of that, uh, we're at uh, Joint Force Command Brunson. Obviously, that is the operational level of NATO. Uh, and I'm really much trying to look into what does it mean? So what is uh, different uh, on command and control at the operational level when you compare it to the more tactical levels? The first point I would make is the operational level is very complex. We should understand uh, mission and intent two levels up and two levels down. And when you are at a joint force command, two levels down, you know, in the land domain is core headquarters. That's a tactical level. They're at operational level. Two levels up from here, we're at NATO at the strategic political level. Um, so 
in this headquarters, you know, the first thing a joint force command needs to do is develop the operational approach in concurrence with a strategic campaign. But they also have to deal with the tactical realities that soldiers, sailors, airmen, uh, Marines have to execute uh, below. So one is just having that that perspective of, of what is the operational uh, level. Um, they don't want to be accused of delving into the weeds and into tactics and at the same time making everything political and strategic. So, But it is about developing an operational approach. And there's some functions that a Joint Force Command does that I think explain that in simple terms. Yeah. Can I dive into that a little bit? So you've been uh, in multiple missions. So I think uh, that you've been in Desert Storm, you've been in Iraqi Freedom, you've been in... Um, in Operation Enduring Freedom, you've been in the Operation in, in Freedom Sentinel. Um, when you look into these missions and at the operational level, where do you think, uh, what would you, can you give an example perhaps of one of those really operational level decisions that you had to take? Or was it more the direction that you had to make uh, the choices in at that level. Right. I probably wouldn't use uh, Operation Desert Storm just because I was a young captain and I couldn't see past, um, you know, the battalion level probably at that time. But, uh, you know, later down the road, and you mentioned Enduring Freedom and Freedom Sentinel, I would say I was in ISAF and I was in Resolute Support Mission, um, but going to the uh, decisions in, in Resolute Support at the operational level, um, 40 nations, um, uh, it was a NATO mission, Resolute Support, but we also had partners there. And uh, I was the Deputy Commanding General for Support for U.S. Forces Afghanistan, I was also the commander of the U.S. National Support Element, but this was all at the operational level, but just coordinating class three in a landlocked country for regional command north, you were there, yeah. right? Regional command west, Italians, Spaniards out there, south, east, regional command center led by Turkey. Um, but just coordinating fuel for at the operational level I mean, you have to think months out in advance. Uh, you can't fight the close fight, manage it day to day. So you have to keep a, a long-term operational view on that. And then the multinational considerations that go with that. And just how do you bring this in? By truck, by air? Tough work. I think that's fantastic because I, I often wonder, I hear so much uh, around me that it's, you know, it's all about now the, taking the decisions within seconds but then I think when you're at this operational level, it must be, I mean, you have lead times. You have to make uh, choices, priorities, set priorities because you have scarce resources. And that is not uh, a matter of seconds. We are talking here, uh, planning ahead and, and always adjusting uh, your campaign. That is obviously quite different from the the second decisions. So decision making at the operational level must be must be different. Do you agree or is this where do you see it? I, I certainly agree. Um, now there's nothing to say that some crisis happens 
right now and you an incident happens and the commander has to be decisive and make a decision. And a lot of times you may not have the information and knowledge and understanding and but you know, a good decision today is better than a great decision tomorrow. So that never goes away. But generally the operational level, I will just tell you here in Brunson, we use a seven day battle rhythm. When you're down at the tactical level, everything's on a 24 hour battle rhythm. And a lot of that is driven by the air tasking order. Um, shape operates depending on crisis and conflict, a 28, maybe a 14 day battle rhythm, but you have to look out. We don't need every level of command focused at the same uh, point in time. Uh, we have to look out further. And uh, even inside the headquarters, you know, we have current operations, we have future operations, and we have the planners. And the commander has to set direction for that. Um, what, what are your time horizons? Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, uh, sir. Thanks again for taking the time and talking to us because what you mentioned, I think it connects uh, really with the current developments that we see in he uh, headquarters transitioning to warfighting headquarters. They use the term warfighting. And if uh, I think it's at all levels, even strategic, operational and tactical. If you look at shape, Brunson is really working on it and uh, I think HQ Arc as well. And I think it all needs to, all that transition needs to support the decision making to uh, outthink, outpace, outsmart our current or future uh, adversaries. What do you think in general about the transition to warfighting headquarters? It is wonderful. It is the right thing. We've been talking about it. And what I'm excited about is we're actually doing it now. Even as SHAPE is a strategic warfighting headquarters, uh, the JFCs, and instead of peaking for an exercise, maybe once every two years. And a lot of this has to do with implementation of DDA. Um, and since Ukraine, um, you know, uh, activating GRPs and uh, doing other things, this should be day in and day out. Um, but uh, I'm excited. And uh, it's time for the warfighting headquarters to start warfighting. Yeah, correct. And see, in, in the because it's still in a transition phase, we're not uh, there yet. But uh, how do you think, based on your experience, does this change anything in the roles, responsibilities and authorities between the different levels? Uh, will there be a shift because it's more also shape stepping up and taking more responsibility actual to... I think uh, orchestrate or synchronize the, the campaigns and not only, I think, providing answers to political questions from the higher level up from their position. Right. I think uh, first you have to understand um, what a strategic warfighting headquarter intends to do. And SHAPE has done a lot of work and we're really going to test this coming up in, in this exercise. But um, there's been some good documentation. If you read it, it sinks and it, it describes what a strategic warfighting headquarters uh, does. I've never been a strategic commander. I've been at the operational level. I've been at the tactical. And I've interfaced at the strategic level. And, you know, my first thought is, oh, they're going to be a warfighting headquarters. They're going to micromanage us. That's not the case at all. And uh, there's a great paper that, that's been developed that, that, you know, I've encouraged everybody in, in Joint Force Command Brunson to, to read and analyze and, and how to, to uh, interact uh, with each other. Oh, that's uh, good to hear. And that's all all those, uh, the concepts and the transition needs to work with the staffing that is uh, in the uh, uh, HQs uh, available. And I think in that in that construct, we're still 
are we locked still in a peacetime establishment, crisis establishment management, or does that is that a system that also needs to adapt and transition to make the actual war fighting in the in the continuum of uh, competition? Uh, because it's hard to speak in a peacetime crisis conflict that's from the military side of the house, but to get all those tasks from now till high-end war fighting, is that, uh, does that need to adapt? I think it does. Uh, you know, fundamentally, we are going through culture change right now. Mm-hmm. And I probably didn't realize this when I was on active duty, <laughs> um, but culture change is the hardest thing leaders do. You just can't, as a commander, will the culture change. Um, it needs to be a grassroots effort that comes from the bottom up and everybody believes in it and they feel it and you move out together. So this whole going to a uh, more of a war fighting headquarters mentality, but this gets into peacetime and crisis, P-E-C-E, Manning. Um, you know, Manning is, is important. Uh, it, it's part of it. Um, that's the model we've had. I don't think we really would test it, we uh, that, that like it would be tested if we had uh, multiple simultaneous um, uh, joint operations uh, occurring. Um, but we do need to take a look. You know, I, I worry about our headquarters being too large, quite frankly, sometimes. Uh, but you got to cut them at the top first because the ones below need to get bigger because they have to. We call it feeding the beast <laughs> up higher, but the ones up top need to you know, settle down with their requests for information. <laughs> so uh, I remember when we spoke to each other uh, almost a year ago, or a little bit more even, you you said to me, you have to turn data into situational dominance. And um, thinking about that, I thought, okay, we have now this seamless connectivity almost that makes it possible to have all that information at a much higher level. And it it drives up this, this big headquarters where you get even more specialists and even more people trying to get into this situational dominance. And ultimately, perhaps uh, a prime minister or, or your commander-in-chief uh, with a very large screwdriver able to, to take the tactical decisions on the ground. And that, of course is very much the opposite of what we would like to do with mission commands. Where do you see these two? Because you obviously saw in in the missions you've been in this driving force upwards where we have this oversight uh, at a higher level versus the obvious need to leave the tactical decisions at the level there ought to be. Yes, there's a couple... Uh, points there. That was, was one great question. Um, I think there's a couple of points. So uh, mission command is one of our tenants in our new uh, ally joint pub one. Uh, behavior centric approach, maneuverist approach, comprehensive approach. And what ties it all together is mission command. And it has three principles. You know, one of them is decentralized execution. Uh, but there is a thirst in today's world where Data is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. I can reach out and get it. Um, when we're doing military operations, we have things that are classified. We don't 
put it on Google. It's not searchable. So, hey, what's going on? And we want this um, the thousand mile screwdriver from space coming down, asking for something. We've all experienced that. I don't think that's going to go away. You can't fault people. I know if I was at at a strategic headquarters, you know, I want to know too. And I want to know now, not tomorrow. So, uh, but we do have to, um, you know, fundamentally trust is what mission command is based on. And uh, we have to have to trust that, you know, the second point though is data um, especially with artificial intelligence, changing character of warfare, we need data and we're getting very focused on data, but enabling a commander to make a decision, data isn't good enough. That's why staffs exist. That's why we have processes. I can talk a little bit more about that if you want me to, but. Uh, no, I think uh, that is very good to tap into that. Uh, as this complexity around us, of course, it is not that nobody asks for more data. No commander will ask for more data. Uh, I think they always would like to have some analysis coming with it. And here comes AI. And uh, it also, I think, leaves the question out. So where do you take what decision? Uh, how standoff can you be? Uh, or what is the... Uh, effect of you being in a certain place uh, to to take that decision. And that taps a little bit into this mission command. So where do we need to take what decision is coming from, from my perspective out of this uh, uh, data that we will have available everywhere. And perhaps we need to change this uh, prerequisite where we had this fixed idea when we are, uh, you know, used to be based on communications, if I can shout, it's, it's a group. And if I can lay down a, a wire, then it's a platoon. And when it's, you can reach it with my own radios, it's a, it's a battalion and it goes up. Changing this might also change our idea of what headquarters structures we need. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? First, we cannot lose sight of what I call the cognitive hierarchy. Data is at the very bottom. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. There's tons of it. Um, but it needs to be processed and turned into information. And then the information needs to be analyzed. And that analysis turns that information into knowledge. And then we apply judgment on that knowledge and we turn it into understanding. This is how we best en enable commanders um, if a commander is going to be fed a lot of data and information, commanders are going to be beholden to their command posts. Um, but they need to be out circulating, conducting face-to-face, -face, um, seeing things firsthand, engaging with civil military uh, partners, um, uh, dealing with subordinate commanders, with higher headquarters, need to be out and about. So we can't lose sight of the, the cognitive hierarchy to help um, commanders uh, make, make, make right decisions. Um, the second uh, point on that is uh, AI. We can get computers to help us, but how many times have we seen we are slaves to a computer? Computers should be slaves to us, but we can never lose sight of the fact what is the fundamental difference between a computer and a human? 
computers cannot reason. And we are a ethical-based alliance, and it gets into ethics. Um, so there will always be a human into the loop. I fully agree with you on that. Uh, I do wonder sometimes, though, there's many tasks, of course. If you look at the staff and the size of the staff, most of that is because there's a lot of work uh, when you want to get together the data and they put it in Excel sheets and, and PowerPoints and, and that in of itself, these kind of tasks, they can be easily be done uh, in a different manner, leaving you more time to do the reasoning. And that gets you into the question of, okay, how can we transform maybe our headquarters structures? Or where do we need to transform our headquarters structures to leave more time for the reasoning part and getting out of the weeds of, just, you know, the simple gathering of data and, and, and getting it together. Maybe I would like to say go from a common operational picture where you just know where what is towards an assessment of what's going on around you and where you base your future direction on. Do you have any thoughts on that? I already mentioned earlier, I think our headquarters are, are too big. Uh, I think in today's day and age, uh, with technology, uh, uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, I think there's many things to be gained, but you know, it does get back to trust. <laughs> Us older folks may not trust those, those machines. I think younger people are better at that. Um, but there are certainly places where, you know, I'll use PED, processing, exploitation, dissemination of intelligence. There's just a ton of sources giving intelligence, but it has to get processed. And uh, that, that drives the need for rooms full of hundreds of analysts and they all need a workstation and workstations need power supplies. They need to be protected. Um, there's probably machines that can do a lot of that work for us and then have a human at the, at the end reviewing it. That's just one example, but I think it probably applies to every joint uh, function out there. In the sustainment world, I can think of a ton of uh, things. Yeah, that's uh, that's nice to hear. It's always, of course, you need that oversight, you need that data, you need that situational awareness and understanding. But in the end, it's all about also decision making. And I think in the decision making, we only not only must look at the commander itself that we all look up, but also take the different responsibilities. And that's all possible if we can delegate authorities to the appropriate level to execute. Uh, what are the most important factors to decide when to delegate the different authorities? I'd say if you can delegate, delegate. A commander should really only do what only the commander can do. Um, it does get to trust knowing your subordinates, your staff, um, you know, whether it's your deputy commander, a subordinate commander, but um, we want to do decentralized operations. So delegate, but something to keep in mind. Um, commander has the power to delegate authority, but can you delegate responsibility and accountability? So you have to keep that in mind. That's why this goes to trust. And you don't want to delegate authority to somebody who's maybe not trained or experienced enough because you're going to retain, you may delegate that authority but the commander will retain the responsibility and accountability uh, for that, but do that. Um, our first SAC year, Eisenhower 
at a uh, the Eisenhower Matrix, and he talks about um, things um, being urgent and important. If it's urgent and it's important, the commander should keep it. If it is not urgent and not important, you should scratch it off the list. Nobody should do it. Don't even delegate it. If it is important but not urgent, maybe you can delegate it. Or if it's um, urgent but not important, you can maybe delegate that one too. So, I mean, he used that as a simple uh, a matrix. But I'd say delegate when you can, but just know your people that you're delegating it to. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. And that's only if we look in, I think, with our experience within military structures a lot. If you, and I think that's also a bridge to uh, the next team, but if we have to uh, interact or synchronize or orchestrate with non-military actors, is it then even possible or is that responsibility and the accountability drive a different way of acting for the current commanders or or will dictate where the uh, responsibilities will stay at a level so you know what your counterpart is in the in the um, the civil counterpart of yours, which drives a lot, of course, in our speed of execution because we need to synchronize with other partners, not only military. It's a interesting uh, concept, um, you know, civil partners, because uh, a lot of our authority comes from our authority to command, um, and certainly an alliance that comes and. Um, some of that may not be able to be given to a civil authority. And um, certainly you get into non-governmental organizations, governmental organizations. Sometimes you have civil partners that are embedded in your headquarters and formations. Some people have dep- civilian deputies, uh, per se. So I think you have to take all that uh, into account when you do that. But I think even more important, though, to get in, uh, really to the root of your question there, Jan, um, I loved unity of command growing up. And by the time I was a division commander of the 1st Cavalry Division, two-star general, and I was deploying to Afghanistan and operating in resolute support, and I was dealing with contractors and contracts. I was dealing with Afghans. I was dealing with NGOs. I was dealing with partner nations, allied nations, and... Uh, They had people working for me. I had um, from the country of Georgia, a NATO partner was doing uh, defense of Bagram Air Base. And they were NATO partners. I didn't command them, but I was responsible for the security of the base. And so I love the word unity of command. I wanted to own everything and I wanted command authority. But I learned, I said, that ended several years ago, maybe when I was a brigade commander. Um, unity of effort now is important. We have to find common goals, work together. And I think with the civil military, that's where you have to come together. Sometimes we're going at different purposes, but we do have complementary and mutually supporting objectives. And we have to find a common ground and achieve unity of effort. Yeah, I fully agree. It takes a lot of conversation, I think, at the appropriate level to get that uh, close to each other. But uh, thanks. I really love that idea. Uh, I think uh, it's it's sometimes people call it coalition command, perhaps. But uh, well, we've got this new 
a definition or in the new concept of multi-domain operations uh, within NATO. Uh, and in the NATO definition, multi-domain operations are described as a military endeavor. Uh, and it states uh, more or less that uh, it's a military comp- uh, contribution to the comprehensive approach. Of course, that leaves a lot of ambiguity, I guess, uh, on what is actually meant. When I read that, I'm always asking myself, okay, what that means that this synchronization with other instruments of power lies at the political level. Uh, But when you are thinking operational command, uh, you don't have uh, the time, I guess. And it's also a little bit not very much mission command if you have that synchronization always go via the political level. So... Where do you see the synchronization with other instruments of power at the level of Brunson, at the level of this joint forces commands? And how can we get in the mode where we can already have that and execute it today? So one of our four key tenants in uh, Allied Joint Pub, one is still uh, the comprehensive approach. Um, and you have to balance that approach with the maneuverist approach, behavior-centric approach, and tie it all together with mission command. And that is a tenet of, of operations for us. Um, but then looking at the instruments of power. So here in the, the Joint Force Command, we're primarily focused on the military instrument of power. So number one is clear recognition. Who is in the lead? Are you, is the military instrument the right tool? Is it in the lead? I mean, often we're not. That gets a comprehensive approach. Um, but the, that's going to be determined politically and by the NAC. Um, but we just need to know that and clearly understand that and make sure your subordinates uh, know that. When it gets uh, into multi-domain operations, tying that together, um, we, we don't have doctrine yet. Multi-domain operations. We, we do have a agreed upon definition. I'm okay with the definition. Um, I think there's, you know, 31 nations, soon to be 32, that probably have differing views on multi-domain operations. Um, but the fact of the matter is, multi-domain, op- we are in a multi-domain environment. We have been. Uh, NATO in the last few years has even acknowledged cyber and space as a domain from the traditional uh, three. So we need to move out, test these concepts, develop our doctrine and uh, come to grips with it. Yeah, I sometimes wonder whether this multi-domain operations also taps into this, uh, the new domains, obviously, being uh, cyber and space and where you see that strategic communication, cyber, uh, also alter this idea of deterrence and we're more or less in a continuum of crisis. And then in this world of deterrence, how do you redefine deterrence? Do we still uh, look at deterrence in the same way? And so what does that mean for the role of the Joint Forces Command in this continuum of crisis where we are today? How can they get in a constant uh, campaigning mode, if you like? Well, if you look at our continuum of peacetime, 
crisis conflict, um, we want deterrence to be successful. We may escalate out of peacetime into crisis. Um, that's where we step our deterrence activities. But deterrence is less an activity and more a influence on the mindset of those we're trying to deter. So maybe we may use activities to do that, but you need to think about, am I influencing uh, those folks? Um, MDO is a part of that. Um, and you have to, st I think there's still a classic deterrence theory, deterrence by punishment and deterrence by denial. I think at the JFC, operationally, we're more into the deterrence by denial. We're going to deny you your objectives. You know why? Because we are an alliance. Um, we are here in joint operations area center with all the nations involved, all the components involved, and the three C's, credibility, capability, and communication. Yet, um in a suit two cycle, it's all about, okay, you have this first idea. You say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do deterrence by denial. And then you assume that might be effective, but you have to measure it as well. And, and so you have to have a look whether your deterrence in all domains, because obviously in the cyber domain, we also see uh, that we're uh, wildly under attack. So you need to measure that today as we are uh, fighting our deterrence war today uh, because we obviously NATO is about making sure we never get into this war. Where do you see that? So do you see our assumption that this will work is well enough uh, continuously tested? And uh, reassessed. So, as we are normally would do in a in a C two cycle, uh, the assessment and perhaps adjusting our assumption: what is really deterrent or what is not. Extremely difficult, and I've listened to some spirited debates and arguments. Is deterrence working? You know, simple answer: Well, war didn't start. Deterrence worked. Then somebody else brings up: Well, we had all these hybrid activities that just happened. They're not. They're testing us. Um, that's extremely difficult, especially when you get into other domains, um, cyber being one, space even uh, more. You know, it's it's easy to draw a line on the ground. This is sovereign territory. Um, they didn't cross it. It works. Um, in the cyber world, there is no straight line on the ground. And and even if some if there was a straight line and somebody crossed it, attribution is very, 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 very difficult. So I think we need to uh, continue having these spirited debates. Uh, I have yet to see a right answer or a wrong answer. Um, keep everything on, on the table. And uh, this is part of uh, developing um um, our multi-domain operations mindset across the alliance. Yeah, obviously that also. Just if you if you allow me to ask more one more question about it, it's obviously tapping into this idea of campaigning. Uh, and um, currently, I really wonder. Okay, nations are in the lead, 
we are in this major crisis, uh, but obviously NATO is also a, a player as they take uh, a lot of actions. They, they're increasing their, um, their posture uh, in, in many, many directions. And I wonder then, where do we today do our deterrence campaign? How can we bring together the analysis that takes place at the national level uh, of all our NATO nations to create converging effects? Um, do you see this somewhere or do, do you think it's done? Uh, where, where can we improve it perhaps? Uh, there's a lot in that question, Vieta. <laughs> um, campaigning, uh, you know, I'd, I'll just go back to shape as a strategic warfighting headquarters. Um, campaign synchronization is what a strategic warfighting headquarters uh, does and manages. And that's why that's so uh, important. Um, so that's that's one point there. Um, deterrence campaign. I'm not sure there's a deterrence campaign. I know we use the word. I'm not saying it's wrong, but um, um what we have not talked about today is the new strategic concept and the implementation of the deterrence and defense of the Euro-Atlantic. So that's why I said deterrence campaign It's deterrence and defense. It's based on deterrence. But if deterrence fails, we have to be prepared to defend our, our alliance. But they're certainly interrelated. And as you look across domains, that's where it gets very, very complex. And again, it's against different adversaries, terror groups and Russia. So, yeah, that's uh, I think currently being at uh, JFC Brunson, they're preparing for it, and you help them already in the lead into supporting academics, a BST or a key leader training in uh, in preparation for the steadfast Jupiter exercise. And collective training is in that MDO described as a key enabler of uh, MDO. And must be enhanced to include scenarios that incorporate a higher level of uh, complexity. What, in uh, your opinion, are the required changes to need to train and exercise to transition into an MDO alliance? Everybody likes to use the buzzword train as you fight. Um, you know, we have to ask ourselves hard questions. Do we train as we fight? Because the hard truth is you fight as you train. So do we need to go to 24-hour operations? Um, do we need to um, look, change at our scenarios? Um, we have all these different training scenarios. Um, do we need to fight a free-thinking enemy? Or do we need to work off of a Mel Mills script? Uh, you know, you asked a question earlier about CEs and PEs, Jan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do we really need the CE in order to fight? I have never seen the entire CE crisis establishment show up for an exercise. Um, so, um, no, I think uh, SACIR has got some great ideas on, on training and uh, the Shape J7 team is uh, starting to work that to uh, transform um, the way we train in the Alliance. And uh, there's a lot of goodness in it. Yeah, that's uh, good to hear because I think in up to now, we also use the exercises still also for uh, certification uh, purposes for the uh, uh, HQ. And uh, I'm in doubt if we really find then a sort of a way in training to fight, to find our own gaps to improve if that stops, if that's uh, 
can it be, I think, executed parallel or should we really focus in we need to improve, then we need to find our gaps to get better to execute right. uh, the DDA assessment. Certification can certainly be a, an outcome, but it shouldn't, in my mind, be the, the primary reason. We should develop training objectives, and the purpose of training is to get better. I always say, you know, three things when you go through a training event that should come out of it. We should learn. We should take what we've learned and get better, and we should do it safely because there's nothing we do in training that's worth, you know, serious injury. And uh, I mean, that, that, that's a very simple uh, view on things, but learn, get better and do it safely. I did, you notice I did not say certify you yeah. for something and maybe say, okay, if you go through this process, because if you're doing very well in the training exercise and you came in at a very high level as an organization or a headquarters, um, we're just not going through the motions. We should have variables rheostats that we can dial it up and make it more difficult for you. On the, on the other side, if we're coming in at a lower level and we're challenged, we should dial it down a little bit because um, it is about the learning. Yeah, and one of those uh, challenges is, I think, in the access of how to integrate our non-military and civilian partners, I think, for real in the exercise program and to come up with their mindset and their ideas and their dynamics and not played uh, by response cells who, of course, try their best to uh, replicate it. But having the actual partners in the exercise gives also, I think, a completely different dynamic to the uh, train and exercise program that we execute. Certainly a lot of room for, for growth on that. Um, you know, having real partners versus uh, role players um, and certainly at the operational and at the strategic level. I'd say at the you know, tactical level, there's some interaction, but it's more about you know, linking up with a convoy and having a meeting, but you know, influencing campaigns and having a comprehensive approach that's at the operational level. Yes, I'm, I'm also very curious. Like in the Vilnius Summit, I think there's been some really changing decisions specifically related to planning. Uh, obviously, uh, Sarkur has uh, showed his new family of plans uh, leading into the regional plans and nations have uh, agreed that they will all come and uh, make their national defense plans and they should be linked more or less with those regional plans. And I'm then really looking, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find out how this now uh, works as I think at the joint force commands, it means that you have to do this iterations and coordination with all the services, with all the uh, NATO nations. How do you see that? How, where, what should I think of when I think of a national defense plan related to these regional plans and how can we develop them? That's a Great question. It's, it's a tough task, but it is a vitally important. And we talk in terms of vertical and horizontal coherence, the alignment of plans and unifying in a particular JOA. Um, there's three regional plans for three different uh, joint operations areas. Um, but taking the national home defense plans of those nations and those JOAs and aligning them with the regional plan. Um, iteration you mentioned, very, very important. 
everybody has to be at the table when we plan. Now I've helped this headquarters um, observed and given feedback. And sometimes all the players weren't in the room. So, okay, next time we get together, we have to make sure they're here, they're here. Um, uh, but uh, components, this gets to multi-domain operations. So you have the nations you think I get aligned with. This is a joint force command. It has its subordinate components. Then we have the theater components that they have to align with too in their domain plans. Um, so there's a lot of alignment and cohering to do. It's not easy, uh, but it's probably the most important thing the commander does. And the other thing I can't get my head around, so uh, I have a technical background. So I see that most of the time in, in the old days, national defense plans would be about capabilities. And we work a lot together with uh, ACT and they are developing uh, the, the future war warfare and uh, looking at that normally it, it is a, a timeline of 15 years or so but uh, the future started today and uh, we see now that nations uh, they have more money than ever so they have their uh, transformation going on at the same time so they need to transform their troops towards this future war fighting troops and at the same time they are getting in this planning for the current situation and there's always the chance that you're you're preparing yourself and and you're buying the stuff for today's war whereas at the time you get it uh, it is outdated as technology is evolving so quickly today. So I'm I'm really a little bit challenged by how this push towards national defense plans based on current uh, requirements versus the future war uh, and our transformation uh, that is at the same time going on, how they interrelate. Transformation, modernization is, happens so rapidly now. Um, I mean, it gets into Moore's law when things, you know, multiply faster and faster and faster. So that's the way technology is going now. There was a time where you could um, have a three and four year development life cycle plan to field equipment and uh, married it up with uh, new organizations and new doctrine. Those days are gone, I think. Um, there's some technology that spins out so quick and we see that from Ukraine that get that now and we're going to get it from commercial, uh, you know, right off the shelf and, and pay for it. Um, you know, conceptually, we used to maybe think 20, 30 years out. We've probably never got it right preparing for the next war. You know, um, we have the militaries that we have. But everybody, and it, it's great to see the excitement, um, higher investment now, uh, thinking about modernization all across the alliance. And, you know, and Ukraine's got everybody's attention, and there's goodness in that. Yeah, my, my challenge with that is still, and that would be another question. So Ukraine obviously is, uh, is it's, it's a smaller nation, and it's fighting... Uh, a fight where we are perhaps in the role of uh, security force assistance or even train assist advice. Um, 
because when NATO would fight, it would be a fight at, uh, with, with different weapon systems and uh, a much larger scale and mass. So I wonder whether we can, uh, whether we should differentiate from that and how, how much thought is put into to this. Oh, we're clearly observing and um, getting lessons identified. I'm not sure we've learned any lessons uh, yet. Um, I, I understand your point. Yeah, uh, NATO would be fighting a lot differently uh, at scale. Um, the fact is, though, that is probably the biggest and best war since World War II that we can study and analyze and, and learn from. So um, I think we're doing that. Um, you know, but my biggest takeaway there, though, is, um, which is so impressive, and Napoleon said this, the moral is to the physical, is three is the one. It's the will of the leadership of the Ukrainian military, of the Ukrainian people. And we can invest in all the technology we want to, um, but I've yet to see a little pill that you can take and it's going to improve your will. The trend slides smoothly into a question that we, we talked a lot of, about a lot of topics and it all comes to our current and future leaders to address that at the different uh, uh, levels. How should we uh, shape our education and training program for those commanders and staff members to be ready for it? Because we're fixed in a set education and training program now, but there's so much new developments that we not only need to train our future commanders, but also our current commanders, and we need to train them fast, train and educate them fast. What is what is essential for them that we must address? Well, first off, it's a mindset of lifelong learning. Um, even if somebody grew up and served in NATO assignments their entire career, that's not going to necessarily make you a uh, the, the perfect joint force uh, commander because of our rapidly changing world. Mm -hmm. So there's got to be a, a multi-faceted uh, uh, program. Uh, this past year, I was running Steadfast Pyramid, and, but we only do that uh, once a year for a week. Um, and that's at the uh, OF5, OF6 level. And we put them in the role of uh, a, a DCOS plans for a joint force command. I was like, gosh, we're using a scenario that's a few years old. Um, we're taking them through crisis planning. Now we have DDA. Uh, we need to expose them to new ideas and, and thinking. And, uh, you know, DSACIR challenged me, uh, Admiral Blount. Hey, take a look at this. Let's, let's get this education right. But I'm just talking about one course. We've got to do this at echelon across the entire alliance. Nations need to do it as well. And uh, we need to look at it um, uh, not just through courses in our training objectives, their learning experiences. Um, the character of war is changing faster now than at any time um, in the history of mankind. The nature of war is going to be the same. War is a bloody, messy extension of politics. Um, that, that part will stay the same. The character of war of how we fight those wars is changing. 
World War One to World War Two, you know, we had the advent of the airplane, the combustion engine, wireless radios in the tanks. Um, machine guns got a little bit better. Um, that was they would call that the interwar years. Um, now, nanotechnology, robotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning. I mean, it, the list goes on and on and on, um, and it's changing so fast. But we have to expose people to that as well, so that we're not stuck in our old ways and to be forward leaning and forward thinking. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm really interested in this topic of commanders and how can we also really train and educate our commanders to grow to the strategic level where you perhaps need a different skill set as well as um, I think sometimes in our exercises we focus a lot on certifications and that then leads away from the chance to really train and exercise our commanders so to have real command challenges in that as well and perhaps new technologies give us the possibility to do that uh, in a way that it will not disrupt other other goals that you would like to achieve at the same time. Do you see ways that we could uh, challenge our current commanders and help uh, our current commanders to, to, to develop their leadership skills for these new challenges? You mentioned strategic commanders, and earlier I said I've never been a strategic commander, um, so I wouldn't even try to venture to guess how to develop somebody to be a good strategic commander. I've seen a lot of good strategic commanders, and you know, I think they don't forget where they came from. Um, they have candor. Um, their job is to provide best possible military advice, and the good ones do that um, in a respectful but candid way. Um, they tell the civilian masters, political leaders, what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Um, so I'm just giving you some characteristics I've seen of good strategic commanders. Um, but strategic or good strategic commanders, when I say don't forget where you come from, they'll reach down back in the lowest level and ask, hey, how can we do this better? And ask three questions. Are we doing the right things? Are we doing things right? And what are we missing? And they are sincere about feedback. Um, so I think we always need to develop commanders to do that. You describing the, this, the characteristics of what we all would like to achieve at one point in life. And it's also only given to a few. Thank you very much. It has been a great pleasure to do this podcast with you. Thank you for your openness and your frankness. And uh, yeah, oh, thanks uh, a lot. My pleasure. It was an honor to be here with you. And I throw it back at you. I thank both of you for what you do. And I guess we'll do a little work together here on Steadfast yeah, Jupiter 23. It was an honor to be here with you and I throw it back at you. I thank both of you for what you do. And I guess we'll do a little work together here on Steadfast yeah, Jupiter 23. Yeah. yeah.